Uh, well, friends, uh, what do you think is one invention that has completely revolutionized the world? Uh, some of us might say it's the invention of the wheel. Uh, others might say it's the invention of the printing press. Uh, still others might say that it's the invention of the internet. Uh, certainly many of these things have revolutionized the way we live and work and enjoy leisure, haven't they? However, one invention we may not have thought about is the invention of the contraceptive pill, which effectively lit the fuse that sparked the sexual revolution in the 1960s. Uh, now, I don't intend uh, this morning to go into the details of all the causes of the sexual revolution. Uh, suffice to say, um, it was underpinned by a gradual rejection of God uh, over many years, as well as the Judeo-Christian view of morality, which was seen to be uh, highly repressive. But the invention of the contraceptive pill and contraception in general effectively broke the connection between sexual intercourse and having children, and in so doing, changed the world profoundly. Uh, previously, it was dangerous to have sex outside of marriage because, well, there was always the possibility of having children, wasn't there? Uh, the possibility of having children out of wedlock and the societal shame this would bring. However, after the contraceptive pill, it was possible to experiment sexually without the consequence of children nor the responsibilities of marriage. Uh, in this way, the sexual revolution of the 1960s was a time of great optimism for many people. Uh, people thought that it would be great to be free from God's morality. People thought that it would be uh, great to be free to choose any number of sexual partners. Uh, the sexual revolution promised great pleasures and great delights in having more and better sex, which would in turn lead to peace and harmony in this world. Uh, famously encapsulated by the hippie phrase, which read, Make love, not war. But has the sexual revolution delivered on its promises? Sixty years on, do we really live in a world where people are enjoying more sex and more satisfying sex, leading to love and peace and harmony in this world? Is that the sort of world uh, that we live in? Well, arguably not. In 2014, a British newspaper reported on a comprehensive survey in the UK on the sexual activities of British adults. Uh, it said, Before the age of austerity, the average British adult enjoyed sex nearly seven times a month. In 2014, that figure had apparently double-dipped to a miserly four times that's less than once a week, with a full third of the population admitting to no sex at all uh, in those 30 days and nights. The nation's male population in particular appears to have lost a significant amount of horizontal confidence, it says. Further, uh, studies such as the one done by Robert Putnam in the US have found consistently that the ones who bear the greatest cost from the promiscuity of the sexual revolution are the children of broken relationships, 
many of whom are disadvantaged economically, socially, and psychologically compared to the rest of the population. Uh, now, friends, I'm aware that we need to read statistics with a certain grain of salt. But it does seem, doesn't it, that at the very least, the sexual revolution has, has not really delivered on its promise of more and better sex uh, leading to peace and harmony in this world. However, what we have seen over the past few weeks is that the Bible tells us a better story of sex. Uh, not only is God the creator of sex and therefore is in a unique position to tell us how it works best, but we've also seen that sex within a lifelong, heterose faithful, heterosexual marriage points to the ultimate reality of God's passionate love for his people, demonstrated at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and consummated on the last day in the ecstatic heavenly marriage. But what does this all mean for marriages now? And what does all this mean if you are a Christian person and you are single? How is it that we can use our lives as sexual beings in a way that is aligned with God's better story of sex? Uh, now, to answer at least some of these questions, uh, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul speaks in detail uh, about marriage and singleness. And the first thing uh, I want you to see there is that sex is for marriage. Sex is for marriage. In other words, Paul encourages regular sex for married couples. Now you can see it there in verse 1. Verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, you may have noticed that Paul begins here with a quote from the Corinthian church themselves. It seems that the Corinthians had written to Paul uh, in a previous letter, saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, now, I don't think that the Corinthians were necessarily advocating for celibacy here, as many commentators seem to think. But it's more likely that they were, they were saying that it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with his wife, simply for pleasure. For you see, in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day, the pagan world thought that you had sex with your wife, but not for pleasure, simply for children. And if you wanted to have sex for pleasure, well, you went outside of the marriage to find it elsewhere. And so perhaps the pagan way of thinking was slowly starting to creep into the Corinthian church. Uh, now it's true, isn't it, that the church... Uh, over its history, has also been guilty of unhealthy attitudes towards sex. Uh, for example, the great theologian Augustine also taught that sex with your spouse should only be for having children and not for pleasure. 
for he thought that sex was an ungodly activity because he assumed that sex, uh, sorry, he assumed that sin, rather, was transmitted through sexual activity. And further, the Roman Catholic practice of insisting that priests do not marry uh, is also common to this day. And so it's often been the case that Christians have thought of sex as something dirty or shameful or even unspiritual. Uh, but friends, nothing could be further from the truth in the Bible. Uh, for Paul here, I hope you can see, encourages married people to have regular sexual intercourse for pleasure. Notice in verse 2 that this is because sex is God's way for married couples to protect themselves from the temptation to seek sex outside of the marriage. If, if you are a married person, did you know that regular sex with your spouse is good for your partner's godliness in this area? However, I just want to be clear that what Paul says is not a license to demand sex from your spouse, nor is it a license to force your spouse to fulfill your sexual fantasies um, and to do things that they don't want to do. Uh, it is possible to be abusive or perverted in your demand for sex. Nor is this a license to neglect being open to having sex for the purpose of having children, which is also an important purpose of marriage. But rather, verse 3 speaks of the obligation that husband and wife have to give themselves to each other for the good and benefit of the other and not to withhold it from each other. Now, generally, I think uh, this is more challenging for wives, uh, isn't it? For men generally uh, have a higher sexual drive than women. Um, so often, uh, one partner will not be in the mood for sex, so to speak. But here, uh, Paul is encouraging married people uh, to offer themselves, to not withhold sex from their partner for the benefit and good of the other. Uh, why should you give yourself in this way if you are married? Well, notice that in verse 4 it is because if you are married, your body does not simply belong to you. Uh, against the individualism of our own day that says, this is my body and I do with my body uh, what I want to do with it. Well, God says your body does not only belong to him, for remember, if you are a Christian person, God has claimed you for himself now to belong to him through the precious blood of Jesus but that your body also belongs to your spouse in the one flesh relationship that you have committed to. And so do not deprive each other of sex. Uh, enjoy it with one another in ways that help each other to grow in godliness. Secondly, notice that Paul says that marriage is for keeps. Marriage is for keeps. And you can see it there in verse 10. Uh, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce from his wife. 
Uh, now, when Paul says there that it is not him, but the Lord who gives this command, uh, I think he's referring to Jesus' own teaching on divorce, uh, recorded for us in places like Matthew chapter 19. And uh, given we're going to be looking at Matthew's Gospel after this particular series on sexuality, uh, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time this morning looking at the topic of divorce. Uh, we'll come back to that uh, later in the year. Uh, however, I do hope that you can see here that Paul is saying that marriage is for keeps. Uh, yes, uh, I think the scriptures recognize that in certain uh, cases, it may be that marriages end in divorce. Um, however, I want, to, I want you to see here that God's basic intention for marriage is that it is for keeps, that it is until death do you part. Uh, but here's the thing. Notice that in this passage, marriage and sex are not the ultimate things. Uh, rather, it is the devotion of the married couple to the Lord that is ultimate. Now you can see it there in verse 5. Uh, have a look with me at verse 5. Uh, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps for a limited, uh, by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, now I'm guessing that this is not a regular practice for many of us. Uh, has anyone ever abstained from sex if you're married because of your prayer life here? Um, I wasn't expecting anyone to put up their hand uh, to that question. Uh, perhaps we should. But uh, I can think of many instances where couples may have abstained from sex because of their devotion to the Lord. Uh, I mean, think about uh, times when married couples have um, devoted themselves to learning and growing about uh, growing from God's Word as they've attended a conference together for a week in a way that has prevented sex. Uh, think about um, those who have devoted time to serving God during a particularly busy period at church which has prevented sex. Uh, Perhaps there are people who've devoted themselves to going on beach mission during summer, which has limited the opportunities to have sex with your spouse for a period of time because your devotion to the Lord was more important. Uh, but here, uh, the point is that even uh, with those things, um, as they take priority, uh, don't um, forever uh, deprive each other of sex, for that is important as well. Uh, you see this idea again about the, the importance of devotion down in verse 26, where Paul speaks about the present distress. Uh, now, some people think that this is speaking about a famine or some other crisis in Corinth during Paul's time. Uh, but I think if you keep on reading, uh, you are given clues as to what, is, what Paul is really talking about. For if you come down with me to verse 29, uh, you notice there that Paul speaks about the appointed time being short. And in verse 31, he speaks about the present form of this world passing away. In other words, uh, 
This is Paul's way of speaking, I think, about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus is returning soon to judge the world that there is work to do, uh, there is a gospel to serve, and so, the real- so this reality is to shape uh, all Christian marriages. Uh, for you see, this is the way Christian marriages are, are to point to the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church, isn't it? It says, husband and wife serve God together, and as people can see that this couple, in the way they relate to one another and in the way they serve God, are living for something greater than earthly things, that people can see a glimpse of the passionate love of Jesus in the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, Christian marriages are not to be selfish. Uh, they're not to be uh, just about the earthly marriage and the family. They are not to be turned in on itself. Um, Christian marriages don't simply leave serving God to other people, and particularly single people. Rather, Christian marriages are to be devoted to the Lord. And so, uh, if you are married this morning, is this what your marriage is like? In what ways is your marriage devoted to serving the Lord and speaking the gospel, uh, certainly within the context of the family itself, which is vitally important, but outside of the home as well. Well, what does all this mean for the single person then? Uh, I think it's true to say that in our world, singleness and not having sex is viewed largely as a tragedy. Uh, Think of how single people are portrayed in movies like Bridget Jones's Diary or The 40-Year-Old Virgin or My Best Friend's Wedding. Uh, The idea is that single people live lonely and sad lives which can only ever change if the right person comes along and you begin a sexual relationship with them. Uh, Now, friends, I think it needs to be acknowledged that sadly... It is not uncommon for Christians to think in similar ways, don't you think? Uh, often Christians in churches look at single, their single brothers and sisters and think that what they really need is to get married. Uh, sometimes quite hurtful and patronising things are said, like, well, I just can't believe how someone like you is not married yet. As a result, many single people find church a challenging place to be, especially in congregations like ours where there is a substantial number of married people with children. However, it is very important that we listen to God's mind on this matter, and I want us to see God's goodness for singles uh, in our passage this morning. And the first thing, uh, I think, is Largely the same point that I I made earlier, which is that sex is still for marriage. Uh, Indeed, the very definition of sexual immorality, which we saw in verse 2, is any behaviour that is designed to sexually arouse another person who is not your husband or your wife. And so sex is firmly for the marriage relationship. And singles need to uphold that as well. It is not for any other relationship 
It is not for the dating relationship. It is not for the engagement. It is for marriage, period, in the Bible. Now, because sex is a good gift from God for the marriage relationship, uh, single people often feel sad at not being able to have sex. Uh, it's natural to feel sad, don't you think, when you don't have something that is a, a good thing. And so it's right, therefore, to ask God for his comfort when these feelings come. However, the striking thing in this passage is that rather than seeing singleness as a tragedy, God says singleness is actually a good gift. Now you can see it there in verse 6 where Paul says, Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Uh, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, what are these gifts that Paul speaks about here in verse 6? Well, uh, when I was a young Christian, it was often thought that, it was often taught rather, that this was the gift of celibacy. And uh, if you have this gift, well, God wants you to be celibate for the rest of your life. Uh, it seemed to me that this was the kind of gift that no one really wanted. Uh, a bit like the gift of underwear on Christmas Day. Uh, you know, it, no one really appreciates it, <laughs> even though it's a gift. Uh, how do you know whether you have this gift? Well, it was often taught that one way to know is if you have a low sexual drive or if you have an unusually strong will to resist sexual temptation. Uh, but I remember thinking along with the rest of my friends that you know, because we had raging hormones and uh, we all struggled with sexual temptation, uh, well, this must be God telling me that I don't have this gift. You know, phew. Um, however, I don't think Paul is speaking about any gift of celibacy here. I think what he is saying is that the state of singleness is a good gift of God, just as the state of marriage is a good gift from God. Now, further, it doesn't mean that it's a perpetual gift either. Uh, if you are a single person and you choose to marry in the future, then you simply trade in your gift of singleness for the gift of marriage at that stage. And one day, if your spouse dies before you do, then you will trade on that day your gift of, of marriage uh, for the gift of singleness again as a widow. But the point here is that singleness is good in God's eyes. Now, why is it good? Uh, why is it good enough for Paul to encourage single people to seriously consider the option of singleness uh, in, a, in their lives? Well, it's because singleness, like marriage, is for devotion. Uh, just like the married person, the single Christian person needs to see that the time is short and that the present form of this world is passing away, which means that the Lord Jesus Christ will soon be here. And so Paul's advice is to remain single 
if you can, uh, in verse 27, so that you can serve the Lord by doing his work. He says, are you free from a wife? Well, in light of all those things, do not seek a wife. But here's the thing. Single people are in a unique position to serve the Lord in a way that married people simply cannot. Uh, For you see uh, this in verse 32 where Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. In other words, when it comes to devotion to the Lord, the single person is at a great advantage. Uh, This, of course, is not to disparage the many responsibilities that married people have. Uh, when uh, When Paul speaks about worldly concerns of married couples, well, he's not saying that these are unimportant concerns. But he's simply recognising that single people do not share much of the concerns of the married people which are bound to this world only. You see, single people do not have sleepless nights uh, as their baby cries. Uh, Single people don't do school drop-offs and pick-ups. Single people don't uh, have to care for their spouses and their children's needs. It's not that single people are not busy. Uh, We mustn't think that somehow they've got all the time in the world. But they are are at a unique advantage in devoting themselves to the work of the Lord. Uh, Listen to what the late John Stott, who was a highly gifted single uh, minister, said in an interview before his death. Uh, He says this, During my 20s and 30s, like most people, I was expecting to marry one day. In fact, during this period, I twice began to develop a relationship with a lady who I thought might be God's choice of life partner for me. But when the time came to make a decision, I can best explain it by saying that I lacked an assurance from God that he meant me to go forward. And so I drew back. And when that happened twice, I naturally began to believe that God meant me to remain single. I am now 76 and well and truly on the shelf. I think he (laughs) says that about himself. Um, Looking back, with the benefits of hindsight, I think I know why. I could never have travelled or written as extensively as I had uh, if I had the responsibilities of a wife and family. Uh, But friends, uh, it's not just John Stott and uh, people who are heroes of the faith Uh, Even at church at nine, uh, I am so thankful that we have many single people who have given themselves to serving the Lord here with us. Uh, They have been such a tremendous blessing to us and a challenge to us uh, to live our lives devoted uh, to the Lord. And uh, I just want to say that, uh, you know, you guys are uh, the real heroes uh, for me. And uh, as a church, we want to keep on encouraging you to use your singleness, uh, not in selfishness like many in this world, 
uh, but for the Lord and for the benefit of his people. Um, For notice that although you might be single, the ultimate thing in God's eyes is that you have not missed out on the marriage that matters. You have not missed out on the marriage that matters. And so, as your deepest longings are met by Jesus in the gospel, and as you find yourself satisfied in him beyond all else, uh, will you display to those around you the all-surpassing worth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel and show that he is enough for you? Uh, Finally, I want you to see that Paul speaks here about the freedom of single people to marry. Uh, You can see it there in verse 36. Verse 36, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Now, I just want to point out three very quick things. Uh, Firstly, marriage is one good solution for singles who have strong sexual desires. Marriage is one good solution for singles who have strong sexual desires. But it is not the only solution. For sex is not a need that must be satisfied through marriage at all costs, you see. Uh, That's how the world thinks about sex, I think. Uh, The world thinks that sex is a need that needs to be expressed and satisfied at all costs. But uh, I love how Christian sexologist Patricia Wirikun often puts it. Uh, She says, sex is not a need. Food is a need. If you don't eat food, you will die. No one has ever died because of not having sex, she says. And so I take it that marriage is one good solution um, for singles who have strong sexual desires. It's not wrong to marry. It's good to marry. But equally good is to remain single and exercise self-control, which is a gift of the Spirit. Secondly, notice that there is freedom in how you get to marriage. Uh, Paul doesn't lay out any rules or regulations here about how to move from singleness to marriage. Uh, You might have noticed that Paul mentions betrothal in this passage. Uh, That was the means during Paul's time um, uh, through which people moved from singleness to marriage. It was a bit like an engagement uh, where parents would often betroth their children to other children from a a very early age. Uh, It's a bit like how some parents here are trying to betroth their children already with other parents. But uh, there's no command to do it this way. Uh, We are free to date. Uh, We are free to do it through arranged marriages, which I know is a frequent practice among many of our subcontinental friends. Uh, Whilst we must exercise wisdom in these areas, there is no single way that is commanded in the Scriptures. But finally, there is one thing, though, that is non-negotiable for a Christian person considering marriage. 
if you belong to Jesus and you choose to marry, marriage must be with another believer. Uh, you can see it there in verse 39 where Paul addresses widows and he says that they are free to marry, but notice, only in the Lord. Uh, Christians, in other words, ought to marry other Christians. For if you are a Christian single person, how is it that you can be ultimately devoted to the Lord in your life beyond all else if you have bound yourself with another person who does not share that love of Jesus? It is simply foolishness and you put your faith in great peril. And so if you are a single person and you are seeking marriage, then marry someone who is in the Lord. Uh, well, friends, uh, the sexual revolution of the 1960s wanted to change the world for the better, but ultimately we are seeing just how damaging and destructive the revolution has really been. Our world is not enjoying more and better sex. Our world is only suffering the devastating consequences of not listening to the God who knows sex and you and I best. But here in 1 Corinthians 7, God speaks of a counter-revolution of sorts, a counter-revolution to our culture as Christians live out God's better story of sex. And friends, God's story of sex is so much better because ultimately it is not simply a story of human marriage and human sexuality uh, with all its difficulties and its failings, but it is a story of Jesus' passionate love for his sinful bride, the church, in dying for us, in washing us clean by his blood, sanctifying us, justifying us, so that one day we will be united with him in the ecstatic heavenly marriage. And so, if you are married, uh, let your marriage be shaped by this ultimate reality. Uh, make sure you live not simply for your earthly marriages and uh, families, earthly families, in selfish ways, but remember that Jesus is coming back so that there is the work of the Lord to do and there are people to love, especially your single brothers and sisters who need your friendship and your encouragement for them to flourish. And uh, if you are a single person, let your singleness be shaped by this ultimate reality as well. Make sure that you do not simply use your freedoms for your selfishness. But remember that Jesus is coming back so that there is work to, to do, the work of the Lord to do, and there are people to love, and especially your married brothers and sisters who need you not to give up on them, but to challenge them to be devoted in serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Uh, we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you that even though we have been, in many ways, the wayward bride in our sinfulness, he has loved us and pursued us and given himself for us on the cross so that one day we might enjoy the ecstatic marriage union of heaven itself. 
Uh, Father, we pray that as your people, we might be shaped by this reality, and especially the way we live as married people and single people. Uh, Father, forgive us for the times when we have been selfish in how we have used our marriages and our single lives, but grant us repentance and help us to live lives that display uh, the glory of your passionate love for us in the gospel. Uh, For those who are married, uh, help us to display the shape of your passionate love for us in the way husbands love their wives and lay down their lives for them and wives joyfully submitting to their husbands. Uh, For those who are single, help us to display the shape of your love for us in the way we find our satisfaction in you above all things. And we pray that although, uh, that we pray that through this, your people might be built up as we await that great day when all earthly things will give way to your eternal kingdom. For we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.